Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. My name is Mike, and I do want to welcome you. I'm really glad that you're here today. Um, we've spent the last six months in a piece of text called the Sermon on the Mount. We are ending that today, uh, but we could, I mean, we could easily spend two years. We won't, but we could, and it would be glorious. Um, but I just want to remind you kind of how the sermon began. If, go ahead and put that up, Randy. Randy, we have maybe, maybe the, the most um, exquisitely trained slide individual in the history of the world back there, Randy. So it's very, expect, expect perfection. I mean, Sarah, Sarah is amazing. I'm just saying, Randy, man, uh, he's got the hat on um, back there. So when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and then he began to teach them. That's how this block of text begins. Here's how it ends at the end of chapter 7. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Now, this is, uh, go back if you would, Randy, to the previous verse. So um, this phrase, when Jesus had finished saying these things, five times in Matthew, you get a statement like this after a big block of teaching. So one of the cool things that Matthew is doing is that Matthew is revealing Jesus as kind of a new Moses leading a new Exodus, and that these five blocks of teaching kind of represent a new Torah, right? The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. And so so this is the first incident uh, incident where um, Matthew will put a verse in there like, when Jesus had finished saying these things. And so this is the first of five blocks that go, kind of Matthew builds this whole text around. And then notice the next verse, Randy. Um, because he taught as one who had authority, usually the rabbinic model of teaching was question and answer, but very often you would be quoting other rabbis in your teaching. And you can read like the Mishnah or the Talmud, and that's what, what's going on as you're quoting uh, rabbinical sources back and forth. And one of the things that was interesting about Jesus is, does Jesus quote anybody else in his sermon? Does he quote anybody else? The answer is no. He is quoting himself as the authority over the proper interpretation of Torah, which was a big deal in those days. So again, maybe in English, you're just kind of like, well, how do we know Jesus was actually as provocative as we think he was? Well, it's little things like these that give you clues into the idea that, well, Jesus wasn't just saying, hey, guys, let me share some opinions with you. He was presenting himself as the determiner of what uh, God's heart was in giving the Torah, which, you know, is a big deal in that community. Now, we're going to look at the last piece of text um, in uh, Matthew chapter 7. We've been looking at the idea of crino, uh, judgment, which is... um, A judgment that condemns is ruled out by Jesus. A discernment, though, that can separate ways of living and separate actions instead of people. That's encouraged. 
Um, but even good crino can go bad when we push our good judgments on people who aren't asking for them. And that ultimately leads us to what Susie covered last week, which is uh, this radical idea that, hey, however you'd like to be treated, treat other people that way. I mean, it really is that basic, what it is that Jesus is getting at here. So Jesus then closes the text, or this part of the sermon, um, with warnings and encouragements, just like Moses would do in the book of Deuteronomy. He says, um, chapter 7, verse 13. Oh, by the way, by the way, I forgot. If you uh, want to discuss at any point or have a question at any point, we very much encourage questions. We're a community that, because we're all gift recipients, believes that it's really okay to be in different places and in process with this whole Jesus thing. And so we very much encourage uh, people to, to interrupt and ask questions. There are two ways to do that. One way is to raise your hand, but today we're introducing microphones to you. And what that means is we have hundreds of people who are watching online who never hear your great questions, who are saying, hey, we'd really love to hear the questions. So we're going to have Kevin and Susie roaming around with microphones. Raise your hand, and then there are just a couple of rules. Number one, you don't get to hold the microphone. And number two, let's be short and sweet on this, all right? And then we'll just go kind of wherever. If you are online or you're like, the idea of talking publicly in a microphone is horrifying to you, we have a text number uh, that you can text any questions to as we go. All right, make sense? Great, fantastic, giddy up. Verse 13 of chapter 7. Jesus has been talking about Crino, and now he's going to encourage his disciples to use Crino, this idea of discernment in um, how it is that people are talking about following him. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for, the, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now, uh, if you've ever been to an ancient city, there are two kind of gates. <laughs> the broad gate are you, is usually the main gate, and it takes you usually to the most important part of the city, and it's easy, and it's well-policed, and um, it's safe, is the idea. The narrow gates are the gates that, you know, you can't fit many people through at once. You, you're climbing stairs or moving over terrain or have to go around to the back of the city and expose yourself to danger. And so the idea between broad and narrow isn't how many people go through them. It's more the broad gate has the idea of being prosperous, and the narrow gate, the Greek word that's used for narrow, has the idea of being difficult and hard. And so it's, it's there, when, when Jesus is inviting people into this kingdom revolution that he's bringing about, he describes it, listen, they're, they're, you have to want to do this. If you just follow the normal flow of human history, you'll miss it. Because what's normal in human history is not what's kingdom in God's eyes. And so you actually have to want to pay attention and have to make an intentional effort. And the choice isn't between a lot of people or little people. The choice is between difficulty or ease. That if you choose the narrow door, what you're signing up for is a life of difficulty, persecution, and hardship. That's the image he's giving. But it's that road, ironically, that leads to life. Whereas the one that's safe and comfortable is the one that leads to destruction. And we can have all sorts of great conversations about that word destruction, which we will not have today. All right, so you understand the image. Pretty simple, 
everyone knows when you approach a city, there are different ways to do it. If you've been to Jerusalem, we should take a trip, by the way. There is a very broad path that goes right into the heart of Jerusalem. And then there are these other gates that are very treacherous that sometimes you, um, you have to make a real you know, dedicated effort to get into. And that's the point. If you're just going to go with the normal flow of human history, you will not find the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is opposite of what normal is uh, to the kingdoms of the world. Make sense so far? Fantastic. Now, in my Bible, there's a paragraph break and a new heading, which seems to communicate, oh, we're talking about something else. And no, we're not talking about something else. Shockingly, paragraph breaks and headings did not exist in the original text, nor did verse numbers. So whenever we insert these, and sometimes they're super helpful, but in cases like this, it's not, because we think he's going to be talking about four different things, but he's actually going to talk about the same thing four different times. So we're, he's warning people about the Broadway, and then now he's going to warn about leaders who claim to speak for God who want to take you the Broadway. All right? So he says, watch out, verse 15, watch out for false prophets, the people that claim to speak for God. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but what's the next word? Inwardly, they are ferocious wolves. So the distinction that Jesus is making is between the appearance of someone on the outside and their true self on the inside, correct? That's the, that's the thing. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Now, he doesn't leave fruit defined yet, but he gives kind of an example of what he's talking about. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes? No. Or figs from thistles? Amazing. No. A tree bears fruit according to its inner nature, correct? So, <coughs> thank you. So, if I get an apple tree and tie oranges onto the branches, do I have an orange tree? No, of course not. So that's what Jesus is saying. Listen, People will come, and I know we can't relate to this today, but people will come and act as disciples and prophets, but not really be disciples and prophets. Well, how do you know? Because their inner nature will always reveal itself if you give it enough time and pay close attention. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Yep. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, wonderful conversation point. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So, what's he saying in two different ways? There is a broad path that does not lead to the kind of life that Jesus is talking about. Instead, there is a narrow Jesus-shaped door that leads to life. And there will be many who will claim to speak for God. How do you know the ones that are true and the ones that are false? Well, you certainly don't pay attention to their outside. You wait for fruit. And what does he mean by fruit? He'll clarify in a second. But at, at minimum, what he means by fruit is your inner nature that will ultimately show itself. All right? Makes sense so far? Now, another paragraph break and another new heading. As if we're talking about something else. Nope, still talking about the same thing. So he's going to clarify what fruit means. And giddy up, brothers and sisters, here we go. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day. Now, when Jesus uses the phrase on that day, he's referring to the great eschatological day of the Lord anticipated by the prophets. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you, which is a repudiation formula. Away from me, you evildoers. Now that's interesting that he's juxtaposed in your name prophesy, in your name drive out demons, and in your name do miracles, and he calls them evildoers. That's interesting. Now, friends, there, the, the normal flow of human history will not lead you into kingdom life. Because kingdom life is Jesus-shaped. And Jesus introduces us to the upside-down kingdom. And that way of living is harder. Right? Forgiving enemies, harder. Blessing people who persecute you, harder. Welcoming people who disagree with you, harder. Forsaking revenge, Harder. Being generous and not hoarding, harder. Would you agree? And living that way of life, at least for his immediate followers, did lead to persecution. Absolutely. So you have to be on the lookout for those who claim to speak for God. Because many will beckon us along the broad path. And they will offer promises of comfort and security and prosperity. When the Jesus-shaped door is one of difficulty and trouble. Well, how do you know the good leaders from the bad ones? Well, he uses agricultural metaphors to say a, a tree will always bear the kind of fruit that the tree is. So just look at the fruit. Well, what's the fruit? Well, here's what Jesus says is not the fruit. Randy, fire up the not the fruit slide. Towards the end there. Randy, I, I really talked you up early. <laughs> that list of the fruit is not, the fruit is not, the fruit is not. Randy, do you have that? Huh? Randy. There it is. See, you do have it. Randy. See, he was doing dramatic effect. That's how good he is. That's how good he is. All right. Fruit here is not spiritual gifts, correct? Because they were doing mighty works in the name of Jesus. Fruit here, next, is not successful ministry. Because, right, weren't they, weren't they boasting before Jesus, in your name we've done X, Y, and Z, and we've performed many miracles? So fruit is not successful ministry. Next. Fruit is not religious confession. Because they, what did they call him? Lord, Lord. Next. Fruit is not spectacular displays of spiritual power. Because man, I mean if somebody showed up this morning and started casting out demons, we'd all be impressed, correct? Next. Fruit is not religious activity. Next. Fruit is not rhetorical skill. 
According to this text, what is the fruit? Do you remember? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does what? The will of my Father in heaven. And what is that? Oh, he just spent three chapters talking about what exactly that was, correct? So, I find it interesting. (laughs) That list of what fruit is not is exactly the list we all use to determine what fruit is in America. Would you agree? Absolutely. We are totally seduced by the broad path. I was going to quote Yoda, but I'm not going to. Right? And so we look, what is a successful ministry? It's one that's big. It's one that's spectacular. It's one that seems to be, I mean, if it's big, it's blessed by God, right? I mean, this is so cutting to the entire enterprise of the way Americans conceive of church, and the way I have too. What's the goal of a church to have a big one? Right? As a pastor, that was always my goal. You grow it. Healthy things grow. I was always told healthy things grow. And so you measured, I mean, they don't invite pastors of 30 people to come up and speak at pastors' conferences. No, they they platform the ones that have big platforms already and have books to sell. I mean, that's just true. And I'm a part of this, so I'm not, I mean, I'm guilty of all of it. But I want us to notice the contrast between what Jesus defines as fruit (laughs) and what we do. (laughs) Right? And we have all of, we're just shocked by these perpetual revelations of big names that have these double lives. And we're just like, well, what does that mean? It means the long slog of Jesus' likeness is never going to be perfect, but it will result in the kind of unmistakable fruit that cannot be put on display by pretense. And so we, as disciples of Jesus, have to just be so much more discerning about who it is. And that's why Paul would say things like, well, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Right? He would live life in such a way that people could unmistakably see the fruit of his life and therefore trust his teaching. So I just just find it so interesting. And again, I don't know how you feel about this, but I'm just so cut to, oh yeah, Oh, yeah. So, so what fruit should we be looking for? Ba- on the basis of the Sermon on the Mount, what fruit are we looking for? There's a question. Let, let me ask them a question first. On the basis of the text we've studied the last six months, which I expect all of you to remember perfectly, <laughs> what's some of the fruit? What does it look like to do the Father's will? Honesty, huge one. Loving the least, oh my goodness, yes. What else? Humility, (laughs) yep. Mercy, goodness, generosity, yeah, absolutely. But I'm also thinking of things like not embracing anger and contempt, right? Like keeping one's word and not verbally manipulating. Like things that we've covered, like blessing the meek. 
and the morning. Loving enemies, loving enemies. That's the kind of fruit that is produced in the narrow Jesus-shaped path, correct? And how do you know if somebody's real? It takes a long time, would you agree? And so it's okay that there are some of you who've been hurt by churches that come in super skeptical. Hallelujah. I understand that completely. You are utterly welcome to be skeptical. Because we want to be about the slow, unspectacular journey of embracing the way of Jesus, and we're not going to do that perfectly. So this, above all, has to be a community of forgiveness. <laughs> right? Suze. Okay, there are two questions, and I think you answered the first one, so I'll just r repeat it. It says, how can we recognize truly good fruit when varied positions each have pros, good in parentheses, and cons, bad in parentheses? Varied positions? How can we recognize truly good fruit when varied positions each have pros and cons? Varied positions of? I don't know. They didn't say specifically. Of so theology? Maybe. Of leadership style? Probably. I would think so. Okay. Cultural politics probably is what Kevin Dixon is suggesting. Yeah. If questioner, you want to write in to clarify, um, notice all of the, the fruit we were just discussing has nothing to do with your particular view on anything. You can hold any view and engage in humility and forgiveness right. and love of enemy, right? So the goal of Jesus following isn't to work out a uniform position on everything. Right? The goal of Jesus following is to put, implement the Father's will as put on display by Jesus with the power of the Spirit and in the place of community so that, that um, we actually become more and more like him. Yes. No they, matter what view you hold specifically. They, they clarified social and political, so good Oh, job. social and political. Mm -hmm. and, and not only that, how you hold a view is more important than the view that you hold. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you look upon the Christian, if you look upon the nation and say, hey, the job of the church is to be right, we've, we've, we've already started from a non-Jesus place. Right? We've argued, and I think the text argues, that the role of the church is to be transformed, not to be the agent of transformation for everybody else. And so there is a fundamental posture that we are to take where we realize the commands of the Bible are for us, right? And not for the people who have not signed up for the Jesus thing yet. Now, we might have different political views on how that works out. Hallelujah. But we can all demonstrate fruit, even in the midst of that. That's a great question. Um, this question is, how can one perform miracles without God's blessing and a relationship with the Spirit? Oh, that's wonderful. Well, you see that in the Pharaoh Moses story, right? The magicians of uh, Egypt were able to replicate, I think, the first two miracles that Moses was able to do. And, and we have all sorts of records uh, from Jewish history of miracle-working people. And, and the, the way to understand that, I think, but who am I, um, is that there are powers at play that aren't just God's. 
working in the world. And so I, I, I think that Jesus um, will often anticipate um, false miracle workings that will attempt to lure the people of God in certain directions. So, I mean, that opens up a whole truckload of other information. But in my view, like, uh, there are certain miracles that can be um, counterfeit. And that seems to be what the scripture at least hints at. Great question. Anything else, guys, before we move on? Awesome. Okay. Well, Jesus isn't done yet. We still have one more. And again, another paragraph break, another heading suggesting we're moving on. But do you see, he's not. He's talking about the same thing the whole way through. And so it's not shocking that he ends with another invitation to put the words that he's just said into practice. Bless you. Therefore, verse 24, everyone who puts these words of mine, so he's just equated God's will and these words of mine, and puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock, the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. So in other words, fruit will always be revealed in times of trouble. And you can tell if somebody's built their house really on, built their life, really on the teachings of Christ or not when times of trouble come. Now, there are all sorts of guesses as to what the rock, because the rock could be Jerusalem and all sorts of things. I just think Jesus is very clearly working his way, just like Moses did in Deuteronomy, through an invitation to life that is both invitation and warning. Invitation is, there is life. Warning is, the normal flow of history won't take you there. The invitation is, there are people who are trustworthy guides into this life. The warning is, but not everyone who claims to be turns out, turn out to be real, authentic guides. How do you know? Well, it's not spectacular displays of power, rhetorical skill, religious confession or activity. What is it instead? Put, these pre- put the words of mine into practice. Do the Father's will. And that is how you begin to discern. And so he closes with a very personal invitation. I mean, imagine you're sitting there, right? We met in January the people who made up this crowd. The disciples, yes, but there were people who had just been healed and they were weak and they were broken. And then Jesus looks at them and says, if you put these words of practice in mind. That's why I disagree with some people who say, no, the point of the Sermon on the Mount is just to remind us how much we need Jesus. Like, no way. Jesus actually intends for us to live that way. And if you're like, well, that's hard. Exactly. Yeah, yes, yes, it doesn't just happen. No one, no one, if you're just flowing through the course of human life, turns into this kind of person. We have to teach our kids to say thank you. We never have to teach them to say mine. Correct? And it's what's true of kids is more true of adults, I mean, for crying out loud. So, so the invitation here that Jesus is giving Notice, and I know this 
like is disturbing way to put this, but this has nothing to do yet with going to heaven. And this has nothing to do with accepting Jesus in your heart. He's inviting us into a way of life that does reflect Jesus in our heart and that does, some, it does involve some sort of heavenly first step before we boomerang back into new creation. But that's not the focus. We've, see, we've taken what Jesus clearly says to do and we've made that about just showing us we need Jesus. And you're like, nope. And no wonder Christians don't bear fruit. We're never taught that that's what's supposed to happen. So let me ask you a question. If I wanted to learn to play tennis, how would I learn to play tennis? Come on. Find a coach? Yeah. Not a trick, not a trick question. How do I, I know, you suspect, I know, I got it, I totally know, I, and your suspicion is warranted, no question about it. But no, I'm actually just being the dumbest, most obvious answer, right? You find someone who can play tennis, and what do you do? You learn from them, and you practice until it becomes, and we even have a word for this, until it becomes second nature, correct? That's what discipleship to Jesus is like. Now, what's not true about tennis, that is true about discipleship to Jesus, is the presence of the Spirit, the presence of the Word, and the presence of the community. But we have a part to play in this transformation. And and it's just, I mean, literally, the word disciple just means student. And so Jesus doesn't expect us to just sort of passively turn into him We actually have to engage in practices that open us up to the Spirit of God in the same way we would engage in practices that help me learn the game of tennis. And that slowly over the course of time, I turn into a tennis player. I may not be a great one, but I know more than I did. The same is true with Christ. We have a mentor in the Holy Spirit and guides in the community and a north star in the Scripture And so the invitation for us isn't just to pray a prayer, switch my sins for his grace, and just sort of carve out a good life for myself. The invitation is to actually live this way, albeit imperfectly. Susie, did you have? Oh, 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 yeah? Lots. Oh, wow. Um, So I think about the people being led astray by false prophets who could be directed to the true Jesus. What's our responsibility there? It's a great question. Um, Boy, I don't know how to answer this without getting into a whole host of other things. When I see Jesus, I I, I see him do something that is so hard to do. Um, Jesus doesn't critique without creating a better alternative. So what I see sometimes in my heart and in the heart of the American church is lots of critique without embodying the better alternative, right? So how can we speak so ruthlessly on sexuality when there's so much sexual abuse going on in our leadership and in our churches, right? I mean, you just go, well, no. The, The goals of sexual purity are for the church, So what I want to do is I want to be the kind of person that lives, 
personally, but is also involved in a community that embodies the better alternative. So that if we're going to prophetically critique something, and there is room for that, no question, we're doing it from a place of com- community where we are working hard to embody the alternative. So like I have, um, I have feelings about women in leadership. That's why I'm here. I love that Susie and Krista are elders. I know that's an incredibly divisive issue. I used to hold the, the traditional view of women could not do that. I've, I've since come to the text more ruthlessly and realized, no, this was permitted all over the place, and we can have that conversation someday. But the, the point I want to make is I do have critiques against the brothers who hold a different view, um, and I'm invited to offer those critiques, but um, I have to do so in several ways. Number one, as part of a community that embodies the alternative, but secondly, with the log in my own eye, me being the biggest sinner in the room, and in the recognition that I am always in a position to learn from everybody. Does that make sense? So I think there is a place for critique, but to, to just sit, stand apart and just lob critiques at each other, that's not Jesus-likeness at all. And we just do that far too much. Now, social media complicates this because now we're in a public forum and virtue signaling is a temptation. So I try usually just to keep my mouth shut and worry about my sin. And, and I don't want to be a false prophet. I mean, sitting up here with this book, like, <laughs> I used to think that was an easy job. No, no. So my primary focus is on me not being a false prophet and me not walking the broad path. Go ahead, Suze. Great question. Great question. Well, on that note, can you have genuine fruit if you have a large platform? (laughs) Uh, It depends what you mean by platform. If your platform has been made by pretending and performing and virtue signaling, then no, of course not. Absolutely not. But the church in Jerusalem grew 3,000 people after one of Peter's sermons, but what was his platform built on? Failure? weakness. He denied Jesus three times, right? The whole gospel story is saturated with his failure. Now, if we want to build a platform on that, awesome. How do we become the people who truly take care of others as we take care of ourselves? Oh, man. How do you learn to be married? (laughs) I mean, really, You've entered in, when we say yes to Jesus, we've entered into a relationship like marriage that cannot help but be transformative. It can't, you can't help it. But if I were to give steps about how to be a better married person, how helpful would those be? Well, they could be at at the early stages, right? Hey, yeah, take some time for yourselves and figure out what the other person hates to do and just go do that and whatever. So we're not my postures early in our marriage. Um, but as you grow into the mystery of marriage, there are no steps. It is this mysterious dance that you're doing relationally. And so for somebody newer in the journey, I like the tennis idea that there are, that you do not have to earn any identity in the kingdom. It's all been bestowed upon you. It's like being, um, if I can use the marriage metaphor again, it's like being a husband. I was proclaimed a husband in a church before I had any idea what it meant to be one, correct? So literally, I stood before a pastor, he said, you're now a husband. And this terrified young woman, like, 
who is this guy, right? And, um, and then, the, then the rest of the journey is working out the identity I already have. So the reason I'm learning to play tennis is because I'm already blessed and uh, have been somebody who has received an identity that's congruent with my tennising, if you would push the metaphor. I know I'm switching metaphors like crazy. But the idea of spiritual disciplines, not to earn God's love, not to earn his approval or favor, but instead to open ourselves up to the work of the Spirit. That's why I want to read the Bible. That's why I pray. That's why I do this. That's why all of this is important. It's not because I'm a good Christian and God will be mad if I don't. I do this because I personally want to be a different kind of person. I don't like the way I have lived a human life. And so my surrender to Jesus was surrendering my understanding of what a human life was. I just, oh, I just picked this up in case somebody had okay, a question. But since you pointed at me, <laughs> um, your analogy of tennis is good learning ground strokes, learning how to serve, learning how to, in the Christian life, is that merely spiritual disciplines or does it include some other practices that oh, Kevin. would be helpful to learn tennis? Oh, Kevin. Oh, Kevin, my Kevin. <laughs> Just leading me along the path. I love it. Asking questions and yet opening up points that need to be further explored. Well done, sir. Well done. Oh, okay. Um, man, how much time do we want to take on this is my first question. I don't know. Is everybody in a hurry? It's 10. Well, I think some hungry, I think some stomachs are rumbling. I'm From not going to lie. I'm looking yeah, out. You could get eaten. Yes. Yeah, true. True. In a zombie attack, I'm the first to go. I totally understand that. I totally understand that. Yep. I just have to outrun you, man. <laughs> That's it. All you have to do is outrun the, the fat guy. Um, and then they're just going to feast for a while. But okay, okay. That's fine. Yeah, that was I'm not graphic, offended by that he... at all. The one thing the whole tennis metaphor does not pick up is the work of the Spirit and our, the synergy between our participation and the work of the Spirit. Nor does it pick up the relational dynamic. That's what the marriage metaphor gets and the tennis metaphor doesn't get. The relational dynamic of what it is to learn to be with someone. The idea that that we learn from Jesus how to be Jesus. And we do that through the work of his spirit. And so I'm apprenticing myself, and I'm studying, yes, the scripture, yes, in the community, yes, the spirit in my own personal devotional life, but there's this relational dance that I'm learning to do that starts out kind of like the beginning of marriage where I'm just learning how to be married. But the older I get and the farther I am in the way of Jesus, the more relational that becomes. And it's less about my performing certain actions, but the Spirit's showing me attitudes and motives that just need to be continually submitted to him. So I'd, I'd, and, and, and that's where like therapy comes in or spiritual direction comes in, um, where uh, ref renewing your mind comes in beyond just the scriptures and guarding what it is that you're putting in there. All those sorts of things I think are really important too. Love you. Okay, last one? No. Okay, nope. Do you think that part of the reason we have a hard time recognizing bad fruit when we're stuck in like that keep sweet, obey and pray, like that documentary idea oh, is wow. because we allow, we give allowances to people 
in power in the church and we ignore intention versus impact. Yes. Oh, genius. So there was a, um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's so good. So, the, so much is excused from a leader's ministry if lots of impact is happening. Right? So I've been told, I've been rebuked. I had really specific concerns in a circle of friends in the early 2000s. And I had, I had say to speak into this person and had r- massive concerns about their character. And not that I'm, believe me, I have math, massive concerns about my own too. But I raised those concerns and immediately was, was met with, yeah, but look at the fruit of the ministry. But the right answer is, well, but look at the fruit of his spirit right? Like, and that's super, that's super delicate because again, how are we crinoing? We're crinoing with ourselves always as the object, right? So, so what you're saying about, about intention versus impact, yeah, I mean, Paul even says, listen, there are people who sell the gospel for profit, but what does that matter? The gospel is being preached, right? God will expose all the deeds of darkness. He's in the middle of doing that right now, right? So, yes, God can use. I mean, if he can use me, he can use any darn person in the history of the planet. Absolutely, no matter how, what a dork they may have, have to be. And you see that th- throughout the scriptures, right? I mean, Paul wasn't an awesome dude, right? Until he got, well... I'm going to move on. But um, there is a sense in which, yes, God can use anybody. But we do excuse way too much because of what we think is authentic fruit. And because we make that mistake, we uh, find ourselves in the position we're in. Such a good point. Such a good point. Okay, a couple more. Well, there's this is pushback. Um, Hold on. We like pushback. We welcome no, pushback. No, no. A lot of platforms are, bl- are based on the false humility of failure, and now they've, quote unquote, figured it out, and can help you not make the same mistakes, <laughs> aka prosperity gospel. How do we tell the so difference? True. Past failure oh. can be deceiving. Oh my goodness, yes, yes. I had, <laughs> I mean, I'm so sorry. It was just a guy a pastor in our area way back in the day who had an affair and then six months later wrote a book about um, how to affair-proof your marriage. And it was just like, (laughs) good Lord. Oh, that's just so true. That's so true. Yes, yes, yes. So, um, and I've had my share of failure. No, uh, yes. And there, there can be, oh, I'm just looking for another platform. And so my failure becomes my new platform in the worst possible way, instead of in the, the humble, like, repentant way. And that's where Paul distinguishes between, like, worldly sorrow and godly repentance, right? Worldly sorrow seems to be, I'm sorry I got caught. Godly repentance is the radical reorientation of life in response to the revelation of your true character. And the only people who can measure that are the people closest to you, because you can fake it everywhere else. So good. So I received the pushback. The platform, the way we do American church sets us up for this. Would you agree? And so the platform is deadly for the platform person, but for the people watching the platform. And, and if, if I felt like, and I've, I've tried to do it 
to do it differently, but we're just so trained that this is the way church goes. And can God use it? Of course he does. He uses it with us. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But it does feed into the recognition of false fruit instead of the, the, the real clear um, articulation and visibility of true fruit. Anything else? All right, last one, last one. And then Sermon on the Mount, done. We never have to listen to Jesus again. We're done. It's six months. It's over. Oh, I thought you had one. No. Oh. Sorry. No, that's okay. You've done great. I don't know. I don't know. And Mike, the work you put into this, I just want to say thank oh, you. Oh, that's kind of It's been a great series. No, 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 no. No, thank you. That's kind of you. All right. All right, so let's, um, let's do what we do, and let's take communion today. Uh, we don't have to do this, but if you'd like, the invitation to communion is an invitation to that narrow path, because what you're taking isn't just what Jesus has done for you, it's what you are now invited to do to other people, right? The pouring out of oneself, the way Jesus did for us, now that's the posture we're to have towards everybody else. So when you go to the stations today and they're around the room, if you're new to our community, everyone's welcome at the table. Absolutely everyone is welcome at the table. When you take the bread and the cup, would you be mindful today that this is saying yes to that narrow way, that narrow Jesus-shaped way that's harder, that goes against what's normal, that leads to life, no doubt, but it doesn't always come easily. So let me pray for us. We will worship together. You are more than welcome to fill out prayer requests uh, around the room as well. Um, this time is just yours. So Father, first of all, we're just super grateful to be guests at your table today. Like we're really grateful. And um, I don't know, I'm just thrilled to be a part of this particular group of people who seem so eager to learn and walk in your ways. And so God, um, would you enrapture us with a vision of human life um, that is surrendered to you, that's not confining, but rather liberating, that's not autonomous, but rather surrendered, that's not full of earning, but rather mercy and grace. Lord, give us a vision for Christianity beyond the small vision that we've been given. And Lord, may we continually be compelled by your beauty and your majesty. And we pray this, Father, in the name of Jesus, our Christ, amen and amen.